All right, we're continuing our study on um, theology, the foundation of our faith. We are on the doctrine of bibliology or the doctrine of the Bible. And today we're going to have our final lesson on the doctrine of the Bible entitled The Sufficiency of the Bible. If you look with me at Proverbs chapter 30, we're going to read verses 5 and 6. And uh, then we're going to get through several things, hopefully today, before we have our small groups. Verse number 5, the Bible says that every word of God is flawless. It means there is no error in it. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Now look at verse 6. Do not add to His words, or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Let me give you some other verses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. And Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. All teach the same principle as verse number 6. Where God warns that we are not to add to or take away from His Word. In Revelation 22, the Bible says, If we do that, He will add to us the plagues that are written in the book. Moses warned the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 12, I'm going to give you the commands of the Lord, but do not add to them or take away from them, lest God punish you for doing that. So if God says, don't add to what I give you, and don't take away from what I give you, is He not telling us everything I have given you is sufficient for whatever you need? If it's not sufficient... Does it not need to be added to? If there's parts of it that are irrelevant, should there not be parts that should be taken away? But if God says four different times, don't add to it and don't take away from it, then everything in there is what I need and every single word is important. I can't ignore any part of it. And he says in Proverbs 30, every Word of God is flawless. So we've already studied about inspiration and revelation and where it came from and why it got here. And we talked last time about the necessity of it in our life and why we need it. Today, I want us to do a couple of things surrounding this idea of the sufficiency of the Bible. It's all I need. So we're going to move into um, this is our, well, our doctrinal statement that we read every day. I'm not going to read it today, but I want to remind you of it. This is the doctrinal statement taken right out of our church material. This is the doctrinal statement that we use at our church to describe what we believe about the Bible. All right? There's a question we want to answer relative to the sufficiency of the Bible, and it's this. Is the Bible all we need to know God and what He wants to tell us? Is it all I need? Now, it's important that you and I understand that because there are a lot of people that do not believe that the answer to that is yes. The Mormons do not believe the answer to that is yes because they have two additional books that they believe were special revelation. One is called the Book of Mormon. One is called the Pearl of Great Price. And they use these in conjunction with the Bible. And in many instances... If either one of those books contradicts the Bible, those other two books take precedent because they were newer revelation. There are those who will tell you, and I quote something similar to what they might say, 
God told me to tell you that if you will send me $1,000, I will send you a spiritual brick. And if you will put that brick in your home, your home will be blessed throughout the years that you live there. Or how about this? For five, let me back up. It's got to be spiritual. For a spiritual seed of $500 to Bill Crockett Ministries, I will send you a prayer cloth that if you pray over it, it will contain supernatural prayer powers. But you can't have that unless you send $500. God told me to tell you that. That is extra biblical revelation. My first question would be, where in the Bible did God tell you to tell me that? Because the Bible is all we need to know God and what He wants to tell us. If anybody can say God told me to tell you, how do we know God told them? There's only one way, and it's the Bible. All right? Now, first of all, we're going to look at some basic facts. We're going to look at two basic facts real quick, and it won't take very long. Then we're going to uh, look at a question that has to be answered. And it's a question that you need to know in your mind the answer to in order to understand the sufficiency of the Scripture. And then finally, and we're going to spend the majority of our time on reasons why people add to or take away from the Bible. Why do the things, for example, that I just mentioned, why do those happen? Why do people do that? If the Bible is all we need, then why do they do that? All right, first of all, let's look at a couple basic facts. Number one, take your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at two main facts that teach us that the Bible is all we need. Number one, the Bible is all that we need for salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse number 15, Paul is writing, by the way, his last letter. He's talking to Timothy, and he says in verse 15, he says, Timothy, that from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able... To make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul said, Timothy, listen. Since you were a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, these Holy Scriptures have the ability. They have the ability. They are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ. Timothy, that's all you needed. From a child you've known, that's all you needed. Because they had the ability to make you wise unto salvation. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, salvation is explained, everything we need to know about it, what it is, how to do it, how it's important, why it's important, why we can have it. Everything we need to know about salvation is contained in the Bible. Okay? Number two, second fact, everything we need to know for living our life is found in the Bible. The Bible is all we need for life. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse number 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or it's God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So the man of God may be thoroughly. The word in the Greek means completely, entirely, in every way, equipped for every good work. So what does the Scripture do? It completely equips me and prepares me for life. I don't need anything else. It gives me everything I need to be equipped for life relative to 
who God is and what he wants to tell me. Now, somebody says, oh, good. Does that mean I don't need to go to college and get a college degree in engineering to be an engineer? All I need to do is have the Bible. Wrong. The Bible is all I need to know who God is and what God wants to tell me. One of the things I think God would tell you is to use your brain, and common sense says if you want to be an engineer and you have no clue how to add one plus one, you probably need to go to school. So don't go haywire with this. That, that's not what it's saying. But everything I need to know how to live life so that if I become an engineer, I live my life in such a way that being an engineer doesn't destroy my life. For Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So the Bible is sufficient to give me everything I need so that no matter what my vocation is in life, I live my life the right way, the way God intended for me to live it. Okay? Take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter. Real quick, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you another passage here that talks about the sufficiency of the Bible to help us know how to live life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We talked about this when we first started our series on the Bible. Grace and peace are multiplied in our life. We don't have time to talk about what those mean. But that we, we get those more fully in our life through what? Through the knowledge of God. Well, how do we get a knowledge of God? Through the Bible. The more I know of the Scripture and the more we saw the necessity or when we talked about the clarity of the Bible, one of the ways that we understand what the Bible means is when we take it and we put it into practice in our life. The writer of Hebrews told us that those who are mature are those who by reason of use practice what's in the Bible. That's how they understand it. So as we use it, it becomes more clear. The principles begin to make sense, and we begin to understand the Bible. Someone who just reads it and never practices it is always going to be that one that says, but you know, I sit in church and I read the Bible and I just can't understand it. Well, it's because you don't do anything to help you understand it. I know people that have gone to college, like me. I went through I don't know how many years of English of some form in college. I still don't understand a lot of it because I don't use it. And I ain't never used it very good. But the truth is, knowledge has to be practiced. When it's practiced, the understanding of that knowledge becomes greater. So, whenever we get the Bible, we get grace and peace, and all that increases through knowledge. Knowledge comes from the Bible. Now, what does that do? Look at verse number 3. His divine power, through which he gave us the Scriptures, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then he goes on, if you read down through verse 9, it talks about how he does that, how we grow in our life and our character, how we grow in our knowledge of what God's will is for our life. But all of that comes through a knowledge of the Scripture. But he says in verse 3 that through this, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, when I look at that, I actually wrote down that he gives us everything we need for life, and that involves two things. Number one, the course of our life, and number two, the character of our life. The course of my life is what I do. The character of my life is how I do it. And that's what he says here. He's given us everything we need for life, the course of my life. 
How do I act? What do I do each day? Right, wrong, my vocation. How do I know where to go? Number two, he also gives me everything I need for godliness, character in my life. And then he starts talking about all of these virtues, these character traits that the Bible will teach us. So, the Bible is sufficient for salvation. The Bible is also sufficient for our life. Now, there's a question that has to be answered. Look at the question. Is everything about God revealed in the Bible? What do you think? Yes or no? Take a wild guess. You're a smart man. Okay? Here it is. Everything about God is not revealed in the Bible. Let me give you two verses, okay? Turn to Deuteronomy 29 and look at verse number 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse number 29. The Bible says the secret things, Moses is writing here, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. In John 21 and verse 25, John wrote this. If all the acts about Jesus were written down, even the world would not be able to contain the volumes that would be written. So in that verse alone, I know that everything about God has not been revealed to us. However, like Andrew said, but everything God wants us to know is revealed in the Bible. Look at the rest of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Things He knows that we don't. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Here's the bottom line. Everything about God is not revealed to us. It's not in this book. If they wrote everything down just in what Jesus did while He was on the earth, the world couldn't hold all the books. Much less if everything there was for the human mind to even try to comprehend about God were written down on top of all the stuff about Jesus. There's no way we could even hold all that information in this little tiny world we live on. However, everything that is revealed is exactly what God wanted us to have. Here's our challenge. Our challenge is not to try and figure out all the stuff that's not written in the book. Our greatest challenge is just trying to live by the stuff that's in the book that we know. We have enough trouble with that. So we not only need what's in here, but we've got to start with what little of what's in here that we already know. And just start doing that. If I can do that, I will be a hundred times a better person than I am right now. Because I personally know I don't do all that right now. So i got plenty to do with trying to figure out all the stuff about God He didn't tell me. So, just a little sidebar. Don't waste your time arguing with people about stuff God didn't tell us. Because He didn't want us to know, and all it does is distract us from spending time on the stuff He does want us to know. Okay? Now, here is the four things I really want us to talk about before we finish up here. Okay? Why do people add to the Bible 
or take away from it. Why do people do that? Okay, let me give you four reasons here, and then we're going to be done. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Number one, because of fleshly desires. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2. Again, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Literally, with just being taught what the Bible says. Instead, to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Literally, myths being ideas conjured up in the mind of a human being. God told me to tell you. Biblically, that's a myth. Because I have no way to prove that that really happened. It's a myth. It's something that's being told to me, but I have no way to know that it's true. How many of you, when you were in college, took a course or a portion of a course that dealt with mythology? Anybody do that? I did. I had a whole thinking course on mythology. It was great because it was easy. But you know what they talked about? All these gods. Zeus. Thor. All these Greek mythology. But you know what that is? They're stories that have meanings, some of which aren't bad, but they're myths because there's no way to prove any of that's true. The Bible says, Paul warned Timothy, that in the latter days what's going to happen is when you teach people what Jesus said, they're not going to want to hear it because of their own desires. Their fleshly desires get blown up when you teach them the truth, so they go find somebody who will be a little nicer. Somebody who will not tell them what to do. Somebody who will water it down so that it's compatible with everybody. And it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings if you tell them the truth. The problem is that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't work. Only what God says works. So why do people... Add to and take away from the Bible. Well, I know the Bible says that, but it doesn't really mean that. Well, it can't mean that, because if it does, it means i got to change. It means I can't keep doing that. It means I can't keep breaking the law and say, it's okay. So, one reason people add to or take away from the Bible is because of their fleshly desires. Paul warned about that. Number two, turn to Mark chapter 7. Another reason people add to or take away from the Bible is because of tradition. Um, we have, by the way, a lot, a lot of this in certain forms, even in the church today. However, in Jesus' day, there was a whole lot of it going on, mostly propagated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave 
uh, unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Notice the word tradition. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? instead of eating their food with unclean hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written. By the way, Jesus didn't water down what he said. He just looked them in the eye and called them hypocrites. How would you like it if I walked in here next week and looked at every one of you, and I said, you bunch of hypocrites? That doesn't sound real nice, does it? Jesus was just being blunt. He was being honest. He said, you're him. what you have just said and the question you just posed to me has exposed your hypocrisy. So we might as well call a spade a spade. You're hypocrites. Now Jesus said, let me explain to you why. Because the Bible wrote about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. By the way, that is in the very raw sense of the term hypocrisy. We are something outwardly, but inwardly we're just the opposite. He says, they worship me in vain. Here is why their hypocrisy was exposed. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God, in order to observe your own tradition. Skip down to verse 13. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. Do we have traditions in our lives? Sure we do. And a lot of them are very good. Um, we have lots of traditions in our family. Um, we have things we do around Christmas time that are family traditions. We have things we do when we go on vacation. They're family tradition. We've built these traditions with our children over the years. We all look forward to them. They're good. And, and we have a great time. There are also traditions in church. For example, the average Baptist church, if you would go by their church and look on the church sign 20 years ago, and some of them had those same signs from 20 years ago, they say, Sunday school at 10 Service at 11, evening service at 6 o'clock. Midweek dinner at 6, midweek prayer meeting at 7. Is there anything wrong with that? Not one thing. Not one thing. But what if we change our sign and it says, First service at 9... Sunday school, by the way, at 8, at 9, at 10.15, and maybe one day down the road at 11.30. Church service at, and, oh, and you know what? Your church ain't even got a sign. You have broken the law of God. How can God bless your church? Oh, and if you have any other hymnal in your church other than whatever, 
And heaven forbid you get rid of hymnals and you put it on a screen. Now, here's the deal. Is any of that breaking the law of God? No. Yet churches split over it. People stop following God over that. Is there anything wrong with trying to accommodate for our people in the community as much of that as possible so they're comfortable when they come to church? No, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And I will tell you, I believe that one of the reasons here at our church we have so many options is we're trying to do that because those are traditions. They're not biblical principles. So it's okay to do if it helps. If it brings people to Christ and gives us an opportunity to share the gospel, it's okay because it's not the Bible. Sin is the transgression of the law. Therefore, anything that is not directly or by implication forbidden in the Scripture is not sin. And yet we make tradition sometimes sin. We criticize people. Read Romans chapter 14 sometime. Paul deals with this, and he talks about why are you judging each other over traditions? You're destroying the testimony of Christ. So why do people change the Bible? Add to it, take it away. Because of traditions. It happened in the Bible. Okay? Number three, non-specific answers. Now, I don't have time to go through all this, but let me give you these two things. Have you ever had a question about something in life like, why did this happen? Or, what should I do? And I know that in our class we talk a lot about knowing God's will for our life and my vocation and what should I do and what direction should I go and how do I make decisions so that I do what God wants me to do. And there are a lot of things about those decisions that God does not specifically just tell us, thou shalt do this. Does he? He just does. It wouldn't be easier if he did. It'd be a whole lot easier if he did. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is there are some things about nonspecific answers that I want to give you. Psalm one nineteen one hundred five says this: Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God's word gives us direction. There are two things whenever we get a nonspecific answer. There are two things we need to always make sure we do. Number one, make sure that you consult the principles of the Bible. Let me give you some verses. Psalm 119, verse 4, verse 9, verse 27, and verse 35. All of these talk about God's precepts. God teaches us principles. There is nowhere in the Bible where God specifically tells us about certain things relative to our culture today. However... He does talk about principles. So when I apply those principles to my life, it tells me whether or not as a believer, for example, I ought to participate in this activity or not. But it doesn't specifically say, thou shalt not do this. But it does teach me principles that if I use them, it helps me. Thus, it becomes that much more important that I know the Bible. I can't just know one or two verses. I can't pick my Bible up for five minutes once every two weeks and expect to understand those principles. I have to study and know it. All right? Number two. So the first thing you do with nonspecific answers is follow the principles of the Bible. Number two, you get proper counsel. 
Turn to Proverbs chapter 15. Real quick, Proverbs chapter 15. And let me show you a couple of verses. One in Proverbs 15, one in Proverbs 16. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. The Bible says plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Do you know one of the most valuable principles of wisdom you and I could ever learn is that whenever we don't know what to do, ask somebody who does. When I was managing salespeople at Office Depot, I instructed them when they were new salespeople to do what I did when I first became a salesperson there that made me successful. And it wasn't this big, long, three-hour class on all the successful tips of selling. That took too long, and I'm partially ADD. I couldn't pay attention that long. So you know what I did? The first week I was hired at Office Depot, I found on our district sales team the person who had won chairman circle the most times since they'd been at Office Depot. I identified that guy, and we became best friends. You know what I did? I followed him around for almost a month. Everything he did, I asked him why he did it. You've won chairman circle twice. You've only been with the company four years. What do you do? Because whatever you're doing, it works. So you know what I did? I just started doing what he did. I also won chairman circle twice and was promoted to district manager within two and a half years. Because I found somebody who knew how to do it, and I just learned from them and did what they did. The same thing's true in a Christian life. When you and I have decisions to make, go find somebody who has been around longer and is wiser than we are and has done it successfully and get some counsel. How do you do this? What did you do? So the Bible says, plans fail when I lack that counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. Now, look at chapter 16, because I want to show you something that's very important when it comes to proper counsel. Chapter 16, verse number 9. In his heart, man plans his course. Well, how did I plan it? By getting counsel. Why am I getting counsel? Because I've got nonspecific answers from the Bible. I've got principles, but I don't know exactly where to go specifically, so I'm going to godly people to get some proper counsel. So I make my plan around that counsel. But ultimately, remember what happens. In a man's heart, he plans his course, but God directs his steps. You know how many times we make plans and 10 years down the road, our course looks nothing like we planned 10 years ago. But how do we get from 10 years ago to now? By getting proper counsel, following God's principles, and stepping one day at a time, doing what we believe God wanted us to do. And as we do that, God directs our steps. I've said this many times. We've been in Columbia now almost 13 years. 15 years ago, I didn't even know Irmo, South Carolina existed. And even beside that, I didn't care. Because I ain't ever going to live in Ur- whatever that is, Irmo, South Carolina. Here I am, 13 years a resident of this city, doing something I never in a million years thought I'd ever do. Because I made my plans, I followed daily what I felt God wanted me to do, and here's where He led me. I don't know the future. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going to be 10 years from now. I just know that if I get proper counsel, I follow the principles of the Bible, God will direct my steps, and I'll end up wherever it is where He wants me to be. The place I don't want to be is way over here where I'm not supposed to be.
Okay? And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, another reason why people add to or take away from the Bible is because of questionable things. And we don't have time today to go through this, but Romans 14 also talks about this. There are some things that we don't specifically have answers to, and they can be questionable. If you'll study 1 Corinthians 8 and you'll study Romans 14, you will find that what Paul teaches us is that anything that hinders the light of Christ from shining through my life, I should eliminate from my life. Because the most important thing is that people see Jesus in me. All right? So, these are some of the reasons why people add to or take away from the Bible. And we don't want to do that. The Bible is sufficient um, for our life. All right? Now, next week, we're going to start into the doctrine of God, which is properly called theology, the study of God. And so we're going to start next week with the question, does God exist? If he does, and you believe that, how would you explain that to somebody? How do you know he exists? We'll talk about that next week. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today. Continue to use your word to direct and mold our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.